In our passage today, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, we see a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders expand. We thought it couldn't get a whole lot bigger because the last few weeks it's been really tense. Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He had just been proclaimed the son of David, that is the king of the line of David. And then he enters the temple and turns over the tables. The religious leaders do not like this, but the conflict expands. Last week, Jesus encountered the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin now brings in the Pharisees and the Herodians into the conflict. And next week, it'll be the Sadducees and a specific scribe. We wouldn't expect the Pharisees and the Herodians to be on the same team, but they unite against Jesus in our passage today. They try to trap him in his talk. They're trying to turn the public against him. They're trying to destroy him. They come with flattery and hypocrisy. They speak hypocritically. They try to butter him up so that he might slip, so that he might say something wrong, so that they can turn the people against him. But Jesus' response wows them all. The question is, will they and will we understand the depth of the wisdom that Jesus speaks? So hear God's word from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. We're going to look at the trap We're going to look specifically at the denarius, and then we're going to look at the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's. We're going to start with a trap. We'll move to the denarius, the things that are Caesar's, and the things that are God's. So the Sadducees sent, excuse me, the Sanhedrin sent the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap Jesus. They're asking him a question about taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? When they ask about what is lawful, they've done this many times in the gospel so far. They're never asking sincere questions. They're always confrontations about, you know, you remember maybe uh, gleaning on the Sabbath was one of the questions that they brought to him, or healing on the Sabbath, or you may remember that John the Baptist said it was not lawful for Herod to have, or for Herodias to have his, uh, her husband. And then there was a question of divorce more generally. And now we have this passage where they're coming asking, is it lawful? In other words, they're asking, can we use the Old Testament law to support our worldly agendas? Are you going to pick a side, Jesus? And this is the trap they're setting for him. There are two sides to this question in in their culture. There were some who were in favor of paying taxes to Caesar, and there were some who were not. Those who were not were these zealots. 
They didn't like the fact that Roman control took over the region about 25 years earlier in AD 6. This was when Caesar Augustus deposed the existing Judean king, King Herod, and the Roman taxes were imposed in Jerusalem and in its region. And because of this tax, there was a man named Judas of Galilee, and he actually led a revolt against Rome and against the tax, saying that faithful Jews should pay tribute to God, not Rome. See the religious significance there. The revolt was ended, Judas's uh, revolt, but the ideologies did not disappear from the populace. So the zealot view remained. The tax was unpopular among the zealots, and some refused to pay it because they did not want to affirm the legitimacy of Roman rule in their land. And they thought that Christians can only give money to God. If Jesus chose this view, if he answered saying, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, then he could be accused of insurrection against the government. We find in Luke chapter 23 that they actually brought this charge against him, even though he does not say that. Then there's the Pharisees' view of taxes. They actually take a middle ground between the two sides. They did not like the taxes. They took more of a zealot approach to uh, understanding the taxes, but they also didn't actively oppose it. They paid their taxes. Then there were the Herodians on the other end. And it's interesting that the Pharisees and the Herodians would come together in this instance because they were not friends on most things, but they are united against Jesus. The Herodians were in favor of the Roman government because it had a good relationship with the Herodian dynasty in Galilee and supported it. So they were all about the tax. They were all about the legitimacy of the Roman government. And if Jesus chose this view, the Herodian view, he would be less popular among the people. And then the Pharisees and the other religious leaders might have, they might have the opportunity to destroy him without the people being upset because the popular mindset was opposed to the taxes. Again, the goal is to trap him in his talk. That is, they want to turn popular opinion against Jesus. They're trying to manipulate him. That's the trap. Let's look at the denarius. The denarius is really important here, more than it seems at first read. Jesus asks them to pull out a denarius. It seems quite quickly they had one in their pocket, pulled it out and showed him. So Jesus, holding the denarius, says, whose likeness and inscription is here on the denarius? Well, first of all, there's a likeness, a picture of Caesar. And then there's an inscription, which scripture does not tell us, but according to uh, historical records, the inscription says, son of the divine Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So there's a claim to divine status, being a son of God. Together, a picture of Caesar with an inscription of deity. This is a God status claim with a graven image on it. And you see quite clearly this violates the first and second commandments. You see here in Exodus 20, chapter, chapter 20, verse three, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. That is no other gods in my presence. That is, you shall have no other gods, period. And here there was a Caesar claiming to be God. And then the very next commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Exodus 20. Holding the coin, Jesus is getting at the heart of the Pharisees and their idolatry. 
And when he's holding the coin, he's not just giving them a visual demonstration that's going to stick with them. He's actually helping reveal their hypocrisy. Because when he asks for a denarius, it doesn't seem like there's much struggle to show a denarius. They have already, by pulling out a denarius, proving they already acknowledge Caesar's authority. They're already saying he is the head over our economic transactions. They've already submitted to him by pulling out his coin, his denarius. Now, Mark actually uses denarius three times in his book. And when you look at them together, every time there's a comparison. There's a comparison between earthly wealth, earthly power, earthly authority versus heavenly authority, God's authority. You may remember back when Jesus fed the 5,000 in chapter 6, the disciples were worried up in arms. What are we going to do? Go spend 200 denarii to buy these people food? And in contrast, who was it that fed these people? It was the good shepherd. And they all ate and were satisfied. The 200 denarii, well over half a year's worth of wages, that would not satisfy. Jesus alone satisfies. And then we'll see in a few chapters here, there's a moment where a woman breaks an alabaster flask with expensive ointment. And again, people are up in arms. That that was worth 300 denarii. That's that's a year's worth of wages. And you just wasted it on Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, no, this is good. There's spiritual blessing in her action. And it far outweighs the earthly value of the denarii. There's a twofold approach to looking at what is lasting wealth. There is the earthly, monetary, economic approach, and then there is a spiritual understanding of true wealth, of lasting authority and lasting value. The point is, Jesus is making the point that the worldly economy was already dominating the thinking of these religious leaders to the point that it was the primary concern for their religious action, even here in this passage. They're confusing an eternal or biblical perspective with their political perspective, and they're trying to use one to support the other. But what they didn't see, blind Bartimaeus saw as he walked by, But what these people didn't see was that the one standing before them has authority and power and wealth that far exceeds the greatest power that they know. Even the Caesar whose face was on their currency has no authority over Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus, king of the heavenly kingdom from whom all good things come, standing in their midst. We as believers need to challenge ourselves as we read a passage like this, and look at the trap, look at the denarius. We need to ask ourselves, does the common kingdom, the worldly interactions, the economy around us, do these dominate our thinking? Do they dominate our identity? Do they dominate our hearts? Do they dominate why we make decisions and what we decide to do? There's another economy, economy of grace, the heavenly economy where Christ is king. And he pours out his blessings, blessing upon blessing on his people. And this economy is of far greater importance because it is eternal. It's where grace and generosity dominate over greed and accumulation. Must be people that are so caught up in thinking about the heavenly realms that we forget 
the worldly economy. When we feel so great about ourselves sometimes, think we're doing really well, either by religious standards, law standards, or by worldly success standards. Let's stop looking at ourselves and take 10 looks to Christ once again. Remembering that his unmatched goodness is what gives us hope. Let's see the reality of our sins that he paid for. And let's glory in the salvation he gives. And then when we feel terrible about ourselves and feel like we're not winning any of the games that the world plays, stop and take 10 looks to Christ. Remember the love that he has for undeserving sinners, the forgiveness that we have in him and the hope of eternal life that Jesus offers. Meditating on his word is one way we can set our minds on this economy and worship as we gather together is another means. These are just some examples of how we do this. And that's why we set aside Sundays to be free of worldly economic transactions. It trains us to see our truest selves are not defined by this world. To separate ourselves from the attachment to things and to set our minds on things that are above where Christ is. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Let us continue. We've looked at the trap. We've looked at the denarius. Let's look at the things that are Caesar's. Because Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he's speaking here of the common kingdom, the worldly economy, the physical world we see around us. And Jesus says, give the things that are Caesar's to Caesar. But we know that giving is not natural force. It's really hard for us to think about paying taxes because we feel like that should be our money. So letting go is really difficult. We naturally hoard. We have to intentionally and consciously tell ourselves to give, to let go of because it's also surrendering control and it's also placing faith in one who is greater. Even when we don't want to, because this is Jesus's command to obey. Because Caesar had proper authority from God. We know this from other passages like Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 2. Paul says in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The authority that Caesar had, had been given to him by God. Paul continues on, he says, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath. That's that's quite a statement. You have to be in subjection to the governing authorities to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And Paul continues in Romans 13, 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. 1 Timothy 2 highlights for us that our job as Christians in this world, in the worldly economy... And when I say worldly economy, I mean not the church, not the dealings of the heavenly realms. We exist in this all the time. Our job, though, is to lead a peaceful and quiet life, to be godly and dignified in every way. And we do so by praying for and thanking God for kings and all who are in high positions. That's why we pray for authorities every Sunday. And I hope that we pray also throughout the week for our authorities so that we might be good citizens, so that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life. And then in 1 Peter 2, we're told, 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. When we do good and live at peace, so far as it depends on us, foolish people are silenced and cannot bring accusations against us. Now, this concept of the common kingdom and submission to authorities is not just here in the New Testament. This goes all the way back to the beginning. God made Adam and Eve to be in this world, and it was good. He gave mankind authority over creation, authority that mirrors his own, and it was good. He gave us work and transactions in this world, and it was all very good. And then sin entered in. Fast forward to the flood. After the fall and after the flood, God made a covenant with Noah. When he put the rainbow in the sky, he promised that he would sustain the common kingdom until he returns. This world that we dwell in, he has given governments to uphold order and to support what is good. But we as Christians also have to remember, maybe you've heard it said, we're just sojourners passing through. We're just pilgrims. That is true as well. Because our primary citizenship is in heaven. There is a heavenly economy. The kingdom of God that Jesus has been proclaiming since the very first chapter in Mark, this is where redemption happens. God has specifically called us as people to live in this kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of redemption, where we see most clearly our participation in the body of Christ when we gather as a church. What we're doing right now is our participation in the heavenly realms. The angels long to look into the things that we we get to see here as we gather together. Because of the fall, and even since before the foundation of the world, God has been in a redemptive relationship with his people, with all who have faith. So Christians who believe are a part of this heavenly kingdom. And the king is Jesus. And the king was standing right there before these people on this day, and they could not see him, at least not the religious leaders, but some could. Because many bowed the knee to Jesus. For you and for me, this is our primary reality. He is our king. So for us today, what do we do? We, we live faithfully and peacefully and honorably with the world around us. We pay taxes to the authorities that God has instituted. Not to do so is to lie and steal. By Christ's command, Christians have no reason to evade taxes or tweak or cheat on them. The only reason then that we would ever try to get out of taxes is selfishness and greed. Refusing to let go of our grasp on this worldly currency that has a man's face on it. Forgetting that there is a greater currency. And we do our duty as citizens. This is not just money. We do our duty, including jury duty. Following the laws of the land. These are part of our living at peace and being citizens of this world. We're honest in our dealings. We set up businesses that promote uh, honesty and, and are based on integrity and truth and excellence. But we hold our grasp on this world very lightly. We do not grasp a tight hold on this world. Our interactions with worldly institutions, including the money in our pockets, these are fading Instead, we hold fast to the kingdom of God. We immerse ourselves into the place where he rules, 
where King Jesus is on the throne, we immerse ourselves into the body of Christ, the church. Here we submit ourselves to his spirit, to his word, to his instituted authority in the church, and we find our identity in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and the truths of grace that we read in the gospel every week. And here, as we gather in Christ, we have begun our eternal life. That heavenly economy has already begun. And when we submit to Caesar, to our government authorities, it does not intrude upon our obedience to God's authority. In fact, God has commanded us to live in such a peaceable, submissive way. The exception is, of course, if the government demands direct disobedience to God's law, in which case we obey our God and face whatever penalties come, knowing that, again, the heavenly economy is far more real and is eternal. Still, the authority and institutions of earthly governments are not going to last into eternity. Jesus will return. He will reign. And the supremacy of his power will be nowhere debated and nowhere questioned. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, some people might say Jesus just gives a cop-out answer here. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God's. He's kind of found, found a middle ground like a postmodern millennial. Just not really committing to either side. That is not at all what he does here. He actually masterfully pacifies the Herodians and tosses a bone to the Pharisees. Neither one can accuse him of anything. Because the Herodians are saying, see, we need to pay our taxes to Caesar. And the Pharisees are saying, but see, not everything is truly Caesar's, so we have to give to God. So neither one can bring accusations, yet somehow they did falsely accuse him just a few days later. But here comes Jesus' main point. Here's the mic drop, the knockout punch. Here's where he leaves them all just marveling at him. In this last section, we're going to look at the things that are God's. When Jesus says, give to God the things that are God's, my goal is that when we hear this and when we dive in, we're not just going to marvel the way they did, but we will obey. They marveled and did not do would we hear this truth and then do something about it? Would we not stop just acknowledging that everything is God's, but would we then proceed to strip the stores of our own kingdoms and give to God what is truly his? First of all, what are the things that are God's? Everything. What belongs to God? Everything. He is the all-powerful and everything belongs to our God. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Anything and everything belongs to God. Anything in our possession in this world is on loan. It is God's. So we give to God of our possessions, our resources, the things that we have. The tithe in Scripture. The tithe is a tenth off the top. This was instituted for Israel, and what it does is it gets to the heart of how we hold on to worldly things. When we give God 10%, when we give God the first fruits of what we make, we, we're acknowledging not just that is His. The other 90% is His as well. 
100% of what we have belongs to our God. It's not like you get to spend the 90% however you want, because that 10% that we give off the top reminds us that the 100% has always been and always will be God's, and we have to steward it all well. If you spend $50 for ungodly things, it doesn't matter if you took that out of what should have been your church giving or if you took it out of what you thought was your money. Either way, you are misusing God's money. When I was a kid, my parents bought us a piggy bank with separate columns. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And when we would get our allowance, maybe it was $10 a week, that first the first fruits went, went to God, goes to church. It totally changes the way you view your money. When, when you, you hear, oh, I'm getting a $10 paycheck, you think now I'm getting a $9 paycheck because God gets the first fruits. And I'm grateful for that training because once I got to high school and college and I had summer jobs or jobs throughout the years when I was, work, when I was in school, even when I really wanted badly to save up for something, whether it was something I needed or something I wanted, I knew only 90% minus the taxes could be considered liquid. The first 10% was already called, already, already claimed. It was God's. In recent years, even when it seemed like we didn't, quote unquote, make enough to give to church, maybe you feel like you've been in a position where you feel like, well, I just don't make enough to give to church. Even when things are really hard financially, even what we do have is God's. Even what we have has to be viewed not as ours. All of it's his especially the first fruits. And when you let go of that first bit of your money, when you give it away, as hard as it is, you're driven to trust that all of it is his. You're driven to trust that he's going to fulfill his promise, that he's going to take care of you as he clothes the lilies. He's provided time after time, and it's not because we hoard every penny. No matter how much you make, whether you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year or hundreds of dollars a month or $5 a week for allowance, give God the first fruits because it's all his and you train yourself to let go and let go and let go of what is his. If we can't get, little, get rid of the, if we can't let go of the little bit that we have and we just have a few dollars, there's no way we'll let go of the lot that we have when we make more money. So we learn to give no matter how much. As hard as it is to let go of what we think is necessary to live on, it teaches us that everything belongs to our God. Money's not the only thing here. Denarius was, was presented. That is money. And so we give to, to Caesar what is Caesar. We give to God the first fruits of our money, but we also give to God the first fruits of our time. Time misspent on Sunday is a sin. So is time misspent on Monday and Tuesday all the way down to Saturday. Give to God what is God's. The time that we have has been given to us. And then there are other things. We could, we could break this down all night. Relational energy, how you use that should be for God's glory. Intellectual pursuits, where you let your mind go and what you think about. Your vocational skills, your bodies, how we view sexuality. Entertainment, what we view for entertainment, what we let into our bodies, how we use all these things must be in a pursuit to give God what is God's. A church plant like this is a great place to see the impact of your giving. I don't just mean financially. 
I mean, efforts and time and the fellowship, the relational investment in a place like this. Because with a smaller gathering, there's a greater impact. When you give your time to help set up or tear down or plan events, it's a huge gift. And it's a blessing to the many who do serve so regularly. And we have lots of people who do that, who give of their time so faithfully. And when you welcome a visitor, that might be the difference between they're feeling a warmth or coldness as they come into this fellowship. When you give your money, it goes to the mission of this church, and our mission is the exaltation of the glory and grace of the Father and the encouragement of love for Jesus Christ and fostering the fruit of the Spirit. Now let's get to the bottom of Jesus' response. If you think that the application has been heavy and pointed so far, And give, 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 give to God what is God, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If you think that's been pointed, there's one more. And it's the heavy hitter. What was it that made Jesus say the denarius belongs to Caesar? It was Caesar's likeness on it. His face right there. That word, it's not a common word, likeness, but it's most prominent use it was in the very first chapter of the Bible when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The likeness of Caesar is on a coin, so it's his. The likeness of God is on his people, so we are God's. We belong to God entirely, every bit of us. The things that are God's that we give back to him includes you. It includes me. Yes, this evening I am telling you, I'm challenging you to dedicate your money to God and your time and your friendships and your minds. But the point is give everything, the entirety of your being, your longings, your goals, your attitudes, your future. Surrender it all to God. Give to God what is God's. Elliot is starting to put together sounds that resemble words it won't be long before he says one of his first words mine might be the first word that you learn too it's not one we have to teach with much effort but it might also be the last word that we understand well because what we call mine is not really mine what we call mine is god's and that includes you you are not yours You have been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that likeness of God, he cares so much for you. He grows it in you. And when we gather together, we start to look more and more like Jesus in this place because we worship him and we submit ourselves to him and we sing songs to him and we let his word wash over us. And the image of God then grows. And that gets me excited for that last day when that image is perfected. And we see him as he is face to face. But with this, today comes great responsibility and sacrifice and surrender. And it's hard, but it creates faith because we have to trust God to provide more and more. We seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all those things will be given to us. But there's also great comfort in the fact that you are God's. There's great comfort in that fact. You belong to him. No one can ever snatch you out of his hand. Jesus will lose none of whom the Father has given to him. Not a one. There's no earthly situation that will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No powers, 
Not even the religious powers that stood before Jesus on this day could separate anyone from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If he has given us his son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? There's great comfort in that because we belong to God. As we leave this, leave this place, let's not just marvel at how everything is God's. Let's obey. Let's give to God what is God's. Let's seek how we can surrender everything and increase in our obedience and our holiness. Let's give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Let's do good and live at peace with those around us. But let us also every day deny ourselves, confess our sins, take up our cross and follow our Jesus. Place your faith not in the kingdom of the world, but in the king of the heavenly kingdom. Look to Jesus, because only there are your sins forgiven. There you find comfort. There you have hope, and only there. This world, all of its Caesars, all of its empires, all of its governments, all of its presidents will not last. Place your faith in the king whose reign of power and forgiveness will never end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Who are we that you would know us? You in your authority and in your majesty and your power have sought to know your children. And in Jesus Christ, we have not only a king who reigns with righteousness and justice as the foundation of his throne, but we have one who has given himself for us. Would we look nowhere else but to him and find our hope there? Teach us by your spirit as we go from here and as we live this week and every day. Would you teach us to give to God the things that are God's, including the deepest longings of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.